um, 46 through 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humbly state. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We can turn to page 893 in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal where we'll read Lord's Days 45 and 46 together responsively. Question 116 asks, why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us and also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. Question 117, how does God want us to pray so that he will listen to us? First, we must pray from the heart to none other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. And what has God commanded us to ask of him? Everything we need spiritually and physically as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. What is this prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then it asks, why, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith 
then will our parents refuse us the things of this life? And why the words who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Beloved, as we consider um, prayer and the Lord's Prayer over the next several weeks, it might seem odd that we're um, using as our text this afternoon the same passage that we looked at this morning on praise, but the two are really uh, not so easy to distinguish. In fact, uh, John Calvin, with many of our Reformed forefathers, recognized song as simply one form of prayer. He wrote in the um, introduction to the Genevan Psalter, as for public prayers, there are two kinds. The one consists simply of speech and the other of song. Or you can think of, of the book of Psalms. We refer to the Psalms as the, the prayer book of the Bible, and yet we also refer to the Psalms as, as the hymn book of the Bible. It does both. Um, as with the prayer or song of Mary, it, it instructs us both in how to pray to God and also in how to praise Him. Having focused this morning on what it teaches us about the, the praise that it should elicit from us, we uh, look this afternoon at what it teaches us about prayer. Looking at this uh, prayer of Mary together with Lord's Day uh, 45 and 46, it, it teaches us at least five things about prayer. Um, first, that prayer is our grateful response to what God has done for us in the gospel. Um, question 116 says that it is the chief part of our gratitude, the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And Mary understands that. Um, these are her first recorded words since verse 38 when she said to the angel, I am the servant of the Lord. Behold, let it be to me according to your word. Now these first words that she speaks are words of gratitude. Calvin says she offers solemn thanksgiving for the mercy which she had experienced in her own person. And in doing this, she becomes our teacher. She shows us what our response should be to what God has done for us in the gospel. Here, here she is simply responding to the good news that a Savior has come into the world, the Son of David, who fulfills that royal promise God made. He is fully God, Son of the Most High, as the angel Gabriel told her. Also fully man, born of the Virgin, yet also fully righteous, conceived by the Holy Spirit, holy from the womb. And because he is fully God, fully man, and fully righteous, he is able to become our mediator. And this is the one for whom Mary, well-trained in the scriptures, had long been waiting. And here she is overwhelmed with gratitude, so overwhelmed that, that she speaks to God the prayer of praise, saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Can you sense the gratitude in this young woman's voice? He has looked upon my humble estate, she says. She knows that she's undeserving. Like Elizabeth, who, who says earlier in, in the passage, why is it granted to me that, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
So Mary recognizes the grace of God in condescending to look upon her, verse 48, in her lowly estate, and she's grateful. Like Calvin said, for what she had experienced in her own person. Notice that the personal pronouns that are used throughout in verse 47, she calls him my savior. In verse 49, she says he has done great things for me. This is not some distant, disengaged religious exercise, but she has personally benefited from the grace of God of the person and work of Christ, and so thanks him. She turns to him in prayer and praise and does what we must also give thanks to God for the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. Have you experienced the same grace that Mary has? No, of course, you've You've not had the blessed privilege of of being the one to bear the Messiah, who, verse 48, all generations would call blessed. But but notice how after verse 49, Mary transitions, just like Hannah does in her song, from using um, singular pronouns like my and me, to then speaking of how God is merciful toward all who fear him, from generation to generation down to this one. She is affirming that the the grace she's experienced in her own person, while a very personal grace, the way that that Lord's Day 7 speaks of, and it says that this grace is not only for others, but also for me, yet while it is a very personal grace, it's not only for her, but she's telling us it extends also to you and me. The one she bears in her womb is not only her Savior, but yours and mine also, and all who confess him by faith and believe that that the reason he came into this world to take on human flesh was to take your place and die for your sins. Lord's Day 14, to cover with his innocence and perfect holiness your sin in which you were conceived. Because he has done that, our hearts must be moved to gratitude. And the first mark of a grateful heart, our catechism tells us, is a heart that wants to tell God, thank you. A heart that wants to commune with the one who has shown us such grace through through prayer. And say, my soul magnifies you for you are my savior and you have been gracious to me. The the flip side of which is, is if Lord's Day 45 is right, that Um, the first mark, the most important part of the gratitude that we owe to God is is our prayer. That means a a prayerless heart is an ungrateful heart. That when we are slow to pray, it's because we have been ungrateful for what God has done for us in Christ. And so Mary here kindly reminds us what God has done for us through Christ in order to make us grateful. She tells us he has looked upon our humble estate. He has shown us mercy. He has filled us with good things and helped his people in remembrance of his mercy as he promised many years ago to Abraham. When God made those three wonderful promises to him in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 15, he enacted that covenant where where the animals were were torn in two and and ordinarily in in this sort of covenant inauguration ceremony, both parties would pass between. But in that moment, when God came down to the smoking fire pot, Abram did not pass through, but only God. 
As if to say, I, 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 will, I will be your guarantor also. I will, I will keep my end of the covenant. Even if you fail, I will take this penalty for you. As the passing between those animals was, was, was as if to say, if I break my end of the deal, let me be like these animals. God comes down and he, he passes through those for him. When commentator said in that moment, God pronounced a death sentence upon his son. God promised that through that same son would come a blessing to all the families of the earth. These are the gospel promises that God made all the way back then to Abraham. Mary's saying he has kept those promises in his son. And she's trying to help us see that because when we are slow to pray, it's because we don't fully understand the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. When we're slow to pray, it's because we have a gratitude problem. And so Mary's solution is is to rehearse in our minds what God has done for us in the gospel so that we might be made grateful and thus moved by that gratitude to prayer. The spark that ignites her prayer is, is simply the preaching of the gospel to her own heart. Rehearsing what God has done for her and thanking him for it. Which leads to the next thing that Mary teaches us about prayer. That prayer is from the heart to God who's revealed himself in his word. That's what question 117 says and that's what Mary models for us in her prayer. That as she is rehearsing what God has done, she's, she's simply responding to what God has revealed in his word. I mentioned this morning the number of, of Old Testament quotations in Mary's song in addition to the I'm not sure, six or seven, eight um, allusions to that song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She also quotes from 2 Samuel. She quotes from Genesis and Habakkuk. Mary quotes from Deuteronomy and Zephaniah, Job, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micah. And from the Psalms, she quotes Psalm 35, 89, 98, 103, 107, and 111. There's at least 11 different books of the Bible and six different Psalms that are quoted in these nine or ten verses. Mary is thoroughly well-versed in the scriptures. This 12 or 13-year-old girl has a knowledge of the Bible that puts many of us to shame. You prick her finger, and as Spurgeon would have said it, it bleeds bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from her. She cannot speak without quoting a text. She is so full of the word of God. And so challenges us to be people of the word like her. She has apparently taken Psalm 119, verse 11 to heart. I have hidden your word in my heart. May it be that we would too. J.C. Ryle says, let us strive every year that we live to be more deeply acquainted with the word. Let us study it, search it, dig into it, meditate on it until it dwells in us richly and let us especially make ourselves familiar with those parts of the Bible like the Psalms that describe the experience of the saints of old. He says we will find it most helpful to us in all our approaches to God. It will supply us the best and most suitable language for both expressing our wants and our thanksgivings. He's saying, meditate on the word like Mary, and you will be better prepared to pray. 
years ago, I preached through Jonah. We, we saw the same thing in Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. Again, in those nine or so verses, there's at least uh, 10 different psalms that he references. He had, he had recited and, and sung them all of his life. He had meditated on them. And so in his moment of need, when, when he turns to God in prayer, it's the psalms that come out of him. Another pastor commenting on that passage said, Christians who make it their practice to stroll frequently through the garden of the Psalms, who make a practice of singing them and committing them to memory will be well repaid in their hours of darkness, doubt, and despair with words fitted just for their troubled situation. Words designed to take their faltering faith by the hand and lead it once again to God. And both Jonah and and Mary Next week in Zechariah, we see as strong an advertisement as could be for the value of meditating on God's word so that we might pray it back to him. The best preparation for prayer is to meditate on the word. And prayer is responding to God who has revealed himself in his word. And so we pray that word back to him. We hide it in our heart. And then let our prayer be the overflow of our heart in which that word dwells. That, I think, is the most practical lesson Mary teaches us about prayer. Just as our children learn to speak by speaking our words back to us, so we learn to pray to our Heavenly Father by speaking His words back to Him. Good um, starting point if you're, you're wanting to do this or to think more about this might be Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, where he gives kind of the nuts and bolts approach to this. Really, it's, it's quite simple. You, you take the words that originated in the heart and mind of God, you circulate them through your heart and mind back to him, and in this way, his words become the wings of our prayer. If you are struggling to pray, as most Christians will confess that they often do, let him take you by the hand and give you the words with which to address him. That's the the second thing that we learn about prayer. Question 117, we pray from the heart to God who has revealed himself in his word. Mary teaches us how to pray God's word back to him, how to pray to him as he has revealed himself in his word, and and how to do this not just in in some rote, dry way, but from the heart. Because this word has lived in her, it has dwelled in her richly, as Paul says in Colossians 3, as she speaks it back to him, there is a depth of feeling that that we see, especially in those first two verses, her her whole soul, the, the depth of her being is involved in this prayer. Which he says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She is praying from the heart to God who has revealed himself in his word. May that be true of us also. The next, because of her deep acquaintance with the word and her deep awareness of what God has done for her in the gospel, the third thing we see is that Mary prays to God with a humble heart. The third lesson that we see about prayer from Mary is that prayer fully recognizes our need and misery, humbling ourselves in God's presence. That to truly pray 
is not to come to God like the the man later in Luke's gospel in Luke 18 who, who brings before God his long list of accomplishments that he thought qualified him to pray to God, saying, thank you, Lord, that I, I am not like other men, but that I fast twice a week and that I, I, I tithe on all that I have. Remember, Jesus was far more impressed with, with the man who not even lifting his eyes up to heaven said, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the kind of humble posture that the middle part of question 117 commends to us and that Mary shows us right here at the beginning of the gospel. She says he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And again, in verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry with good things. She recognizes herself as a debtor to grace. In verse 47, she calls God her savior. By the way, admitting her need for someone to save her over and against the Roman Catholic conception of of Mary's um, immaculate conception where they teach that she was without sin from from conception. No, she fully admits her need and misery and humbles herself in God's majestic presence, calling him her savior, her mediator. She is not a co-mediator. He is her mediator. There is a humility throughout this prayer that that not only do we see it characterizing Mary's prayer, but but should characterize all of our prayer, all of our interactions with God. Mary was conscious of her unworthiness because she was conscious of God's majesty. We've we've quoted these words before, even recently, as we looked at the 10th commandment, but Calvin, at the beginning of his his institutes, he he says that the two things that we must know if we would grow in wisdom, we must have a greater uh, conception of the majesty of God, and then, having seen his majesty, have a a greater understanding of our own own misery. As we see God's greatness, we come to know ourselves. And we see that same thing going on in this passage. Remember, just before this, in, in verse 34, the angel told Mary that the power of the Most High was going to overshadow her and would conceive this child in the womb. I'm not sure what that would have felt like. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, um, Mary had felt the touch of his power. The archangel told her that she would, that the Most High would overshadow her and the power of God would be upon her and she had felt it. She had, as it were, been touched by God. She had sensed the eternal presence, and and Lloyd-Jones says, I I do not care who or what you are, if you have ever had the faintest suspicion of a realization of the presence and glory and greatness and majesty and holiness of God, it will humble you to the dust. Think of Isaiah's vision in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. He, he sees a vision of the glory of God filling the temple, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. His awareness of God's glory made him more aware, as question 117 says, of his need and misery, so that he humbled himself in God's majestic presence. Same is true of Mary. The moment we realize something of the nearness and presence and power of God's being, we see ourselves as we are and begin to comprehend what question 120 says, not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. 
Mary had seen God's angelic messenger. Mary had felt the power of the Most High overshadow her. And so her response wasn't pride. It wasn't look at me that God would choose to visit me with this angel and give me this great, this great privilege of bearing the Messiah. But her response was humility. A poverty of spirit and, and, and meekness of heart that Christ will later commend to us in the Beatitudes seen here already in his mother. And as we too pray to God, that poverty of spirit, that meekness of heart must be ours. As Augustine said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing. We must fully recognize our need and misery humbling ourselves in God's majestic presence. But then notice Mary doesn't just stop there. She doesn't just humble herself as though her lowly estate and God's heavenly majesty meant that that she had no hopes of, of communicating with him. But paired with her meek and lowly Christ like spirit is a humble confidence where even though God is far above her, she recognizes, verse 48, that he has looked upon her, that the high and holy God condescended to the person of his son who she now carries in her womb. And so though she recognizes her need and misery and though she recognizes God's heavenly majesty, she is able to call him, in verse 47, my savior, who has done great things, verse 52, for me. Verse 49, and then in verse 52, she says, his, his mercy is great towards those who fear him, who exalts, verse 52, the, the blessed status of being his children. She says he, he feeds from his own hand, in verse 53, like a father does his child. As members of his family shown mercy, verses 54 and 55, for the sake of the covenant that God has made with their fathers. This is what question 117 means when when it says that even though we fully recognize our need and misery, we nevertheless rest on this unshakable foundation. That even though we do not deserve it, yet God will surely hear our prayer because of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. A prayer rests on this unshakable foundation of God's covenant-keeping mercy in Christ that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, which he spoke to Abram and to his offspring forever. At the very end of, of her prayer, Mary is saying, God in Christ has kept his covenant promise to show mercy, the very coming of Christ into the world of which she sings is the yes and amen of all God's promises. And because of that, she can be sure, if you had a shadow of a doubt, that he will show mercy to all who are offspring of Abraham by faith, those who fear him. Verse 50, they are given the blessed privilege of which our catechism speaks in Lord's Day 46 when it says God through Christ has become our father and will much less refuse us the things of this life when we ask in faith than our parents will will refuse us the, the things that we ask for. Because of Jesus, the one she bears in her womb, the eternal Son of God, we can become sons and daughters of God by faith and have that childlike reverence and trust the Catechism speaks of, sure that his mercy 
is for us. And we may expect from his almighty hand everything needed for body and soul. Which leads to the last point about prayer. The Mary's song we see both in Lord's Days 45 and 46 that prayer includes everything needed for body and soul. What has God commanded us to ask of him Everything we need, spiritually and physically, is embraced in the prayer that Christ our Lord himself taught us to pray. And then question 121, the words, our Father, which, which speak of the confidence that Mary and we can have as we come to God, says, teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way, but to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. I just want to show you how this is true also of Mary's prayer. Um, Certainly it speaks of spiritual need, the mercy that he shows her as her savior in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. Clearly that, that has reference to what God has done for us in the gospel, meeting our most basic need, the forgiveness of sins. What it be spoken of in Zechariah's song, how John the Baptist will come and give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God who will visit us as the, the sunrise from on high, coming to his people in darkness. So yes, clearly what, what Mary and what Zechariah will later speak of um, has, has reference to our spiritual need. But we shouldn't miss the fact that Mary's prayer does not only include those things that, that we might call spiritual, but in, in verses 51 and verses uh, 52, we saw this morning, she speaks of God overthrowing ungodly rulers like Herod, who oppress his people, who cause them to suffer not just spiritually, but also physically. She reminds us it's, it's okay to pray that God would disarm the wicked so that they might no longer harm his image bearers and his children. And not only that, but, but Mary teaches us that, that it's okay also to pray that God would fill the hungry with good things. And before we spiritualize this completely, I think it's worth noting that Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, is the, the gospel for the poor. It's also more than any other gospel, the gospel of, of, of meals, where it seems everywhere you turn, Jesus is having a meal with someone. But these themes are, are, are not to be completely spiritualized. You think of, of uh, Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of it in Luke chapter 6. In the Beatitudes, um, Jesus does not say, as, as Matthew has him say it, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness, but, but Jesus simply says, blessed are the hungry, for you shall be satisfied, and woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. He doesn't modify it by by saying hunger and thirst for righteousness, but he just leaves it because God is concerned also with meeting our physical needs. And so Mary, and what she celebrates in verse 53 is, is praying a fifth petition prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and thanking God in advance for it as may we. Concerning ourselves not only with the spiritual, but it's okay to pray for physical needs too. Christ himself sanctions it, our catechism teaches it, and Mary models it. Prayer includes everything needed for body and soul. Food for the hungry, relief for the oppressed and downtrodden, healing for the sick, 
For we are God's children, and he delights to give us the things that we need. Jesus will make that very point in Luke eleven thirteen. 13. He's a good father who delights to give his children the things that they ask. So may Mary's prayer motivate us to gratefully respond to what God has done for us in the gospel. It motivate us to pray from the heart to God who has revealed himself to us in his word, praying that word back to him. May she teach us to fully recognize our need and misery, humbling ourselves in God's majestic presence, yet resting on this unshakable foundation of God's covenant-keeping mercy in Christ. And so confidently bringing before him everything we need for body and soul. As you pray the the prayers of God's word back to him, start with this one. Let this pious preteen peasant teach you to pray with with childlike trust through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer and use this prayer as our model. Our Father in heaven, our souls magnify you. Not that there is anything that we can can do to make you greater. But we are grateful, Lord, for all that you have done for us in your son and sending him to be born of a woman, son of God and son of man, the second Adam to save us. Like Mary, our souls rejoice in you and how you have saved us. So you have looked upon us in our misery and, and sin, our unworthiness. And Lord, as we consider your heavenly majesty and our lowly estate, like Mary and like the psalmist before her in Psalm 8, we say, what is man that you are mindful of him? You would send your son to save us and to do great things for us. Lord, as we contemplate that, we are are led to say with Mary and with Hannah before her, holy is your name. Your mercy is for those who fear you, not just in Mary's case, but from generation to generation, including us and our children. You care for by filling with good things, caring for our needs both physically and spiritually, exalting us from our lowly estate to be sons and daughters of the king, children of our heavenly father. Because of Christ, your son, in whom you have kept every one of your covenant promises, remembering your promise to Abram, which you have fulfilled in your son. And so, Lord, as we consider all of this, again, our souls magnify you. We praise you and hallow your name for all that you have done. We pray that you would help us to be a grateful people, most especially in being like Mary, a people of your word, being a people of prayer. We take your word like Mary and pray it back to you, trusting you for every good thing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior.